Hello, everybody. It's Keith. Help support the Northeast scene and declare yourself a member today. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast medium of choice. Rate us and leave a review. Every little bit helps. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. It has every podcast episode plus other exclusive content. Like and leave a comment. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TheNEScene. Also, continue to write us at NortheastScene at gmail.com. We want to share your experiences as well. And now, here's the show. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? Yeah, if a coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions, no doubt. No doubt in my mind. You better believe things have been different. I'd have gone pro in a heartbeat. I'd be making millions of dollars and living in a big old mansion somewhere. You know, soaking it up in a hot tub with my soul mate. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Northeast Scene Podcast. This is Keith. And Tommy. Welcome, everybody. We're here on a boiling Monday evening to bring you the finest podcast content known to humankind. How do you feel about that statement, Tommy? Uh, I feel like we've gone over this before. (laughs) (laughs) I, I want you I want you to join me in this rally and saying we're the best. I feel like you're hesitant to do so. I feel if we <laughs> if we keep saying it, it will become a reality somehow. Like how Michael Jackson just said he was the king of pop and then he was the king of pop or how Howard Stern just said he's the king of all media and then he's the king of all media. If we keep saying we're the best, we'll be the best. Uh which that uh thing? Remember Big Lebowski? If you yeah. will it, it is no dream. Theodore Herzl. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tonight is exciting. On the show, we're going to have guitarist Peter Soros of Fairweather and the new supergroup Be Well. Excellent band. We're going to talk to him about those bands and more, and it's going to be great. You know what's really funny is when I read that text of like when you sent it to me like last week of like who we're having on, for some reason my brain went from Fairweather to Starkweather. So... <laughs> I, I listened to a fair amount of stark weather before I was like, wow, this band's heavy as shit. And then I heard Be Well, and I was like, this doesn't seem like the same kind of like music at all. I don't know. Like, this is like a really strange jumping off point. And then I was like, let me go back and look at that. And I was like, you know, I'd be like, let me go look at his text. And I saw it and I was like, oh, I'm an idiot. <laughs> so you confused fair weather and stark weather? Yes. That's a pretty big mix up. I, I didn't know. I mean, in my head, I'm going like, I, I didn't know Fairweather really well. I, I just knew like that I heard I like all I read was that word weather and I was like, yeah, it's stark weather. <laughs> so Fairweather were around a lot back in the day when I was touring and stuff and oh, yeah. when I was out with this day forward selling merch and yeah, they were all over the place and they're really good. They're really good. I I really dig their sound. That that first record has a lot of the post hardcore vibes I'm really into and We'll talk to Peter about all this stuff. You know, we don't we don't want to uh, jump the gun. Fair enough. So what's going on with you? 
just lost my mind at my kid. <laughs> why? That's why what I happened? was that's why I was late. All right. So they have their iPads, right? Yeah. And basically what happened was they have those the app limit on their iPad, which is they get one hour a day on their iPad total. So yeah. um in order to bypass that one hour, they have to put in a passcode. Um mm. I changed the passcode for that because I I I not I thought I know one of my children was bypassing the code and getting more time because it does keep track of how many hours you're actually on the screen. It gives you that screen time report. So I changed the passcode. Well, here's the thing. I changed the passcode and told her, here's the new passcode. Well, she typed in the wrong passcode that I wrote down, which was... Wait, uh, why did you give her the new passcode? Because... She, it, it only changed – it changed the one on the um, outside, you know, like the unlock one. Yeah. But I wanted her to know, like, this is the new unlock one as well. So I changed the unlock one, and I changed the one for the app limit. I made them different passwords, so I only gave her the one for the unlock one. Here's the problem. She misread it. I wrote down the passcode. It's only four digits. Instead of starting with a zero, she ended with a zero. So she put it in ten times. And disabled the iPad completely. So when I went to go turn it on, it said, iPad disabled, please connect to iTunes. So I literally, that's why I texted you before this. I'm like, I'm going to be a couple minutes late because I literally had to take her iPad, hook it up to the MacBook, use the find my phone thing, erase the iPad completely, log back in, use my iTunes, but what is the... uh iCloud password to reset it and like the whole time I'm going like I have to get this done because she has to finish some schoolwork and on <laughs> top of that I, I have to go record and I don't want to have to deal with the tears tonight of like I couldn't use my iPad because daddy didn't set the number so I was just like I'm fixing this now and it's getting done now so so did you uh just give up on the one hour a day thing now yeah yeah. <laughs> so what we, I'd be like, whatever. I tried. <laughs> yeah. So what we what I did was uh, I just went. You are going to use your iPad at a specific time when you use it. Just tell mommy and daddy, and we'll just set a timer on our phones. And when the timer goes off, that means you're done with your iPad. There you go. So that's how we're going to work it from now on. But they uh, they we've been doing that. I told you guys about this, about the step challenge. We've been doing like who wins in terms of steps and we, you know, get to pick takeout and stuff like that. Yes. One, one of the ideas we had was, um, for every 30,000 steps they take, they can get an extra 15 minutes on their iPad. Well, they don't, my kids are like the, the biggest savers in the world. So Evelyn currently has, I think 874,000 steps. So your kids are the biggest savers in the world. You know where they got that from? Oh well, it, yeah. It, this is implicit. This is implicit. I mean, I I teach all of this stuff not constantly. <laughs> my kids will never be fr- my my kids will never be frivolous with money. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, so uh, yeah. So one of them has like eight hundred thousand and and some, and then the other one has over a million. So we've oh been tr- we've been trying to be like, yo, uh, what do you want to get to trade in for your steps? Well, guess what they want. KFC? Nope. Time on their iPad. Ah. So 30,000 steps equals 15 minutes. So basically, uh, they've been just trading in steps over and over again. Like yesterday, she, like the one kid was like, uh, 
I will give you, and it's neat because they can do the math in their head pretty quick. She's like, I'll give you 90,000 steps and I'm going to be on my iPad for 45 more minutes because I want to finish watching this movie. I didn't have the heart to tell her, like, you can just watch that on the TV. <laughs> like, you can just turn on that. We don't monitor the amount of time they're on the television. Like, because they really aren't like TV kids. Like, they'll, you know, watch a movie on Friday nights or like, you know, they'll watch a couple shows during the day. But like, they're not like big TV kids. So it was like, all right, whatever. But she wanted to be like in her bedroom with her headphones on and watch the rest of the movie that she was watching, which is the new Disney Raya Last of the, the Last Dragon movie. Yeah. Well, I'm saying, yeah, but I have no idea what that is. It's a, don't worry about it. It's garbage. Yeah. But yeah. So that's where I've been. How have you been? You asked. Oh my God. I was this waiting. Two, week, two weeks in a row, bro. I love this. <laughs> I implement feedback pretty well. When somebody tells me I stink <laughs> at something, I'm like, all right, make it a conscientious t- point to be better at that. I was sitting here. I'm like, I'm not going to ask him. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to see where this goes. And then you asked. This makes me feel good. Did you see how strong our bo- our bond is? Or am I just a pain in the ass? Uh, I think it's both. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm I'm actually I was thinking about this the other day. I had a I had a dream and I was like, I'm gonna get to hang out and hug Keith in like a month. Yes. It's <laughs> gonna happen soon. There I'll get the second dose and then I think you have to wait a couple weeks and then I'm going to plan. Well, there may be a reason I have to come down there, but that's top secret. Yeah. Uh, we're going to talk about that never. Fair enough. But here, I got into some online beef. Ooh. Do you want to hear about this? This is, yes. This is, this is your answer to how you are doing. So let's go. <laughs> exactly. All right. So I'm an avid player of Call of Duty Warzone, as you know. Yeah. I have a group of three guys I play with who I met online. They live all over the place, right? It's gotten a little toxic lately. Like... Two of the guys, when they die, they'll blame me. You know what I mean? Like, like they'll die and they'll be like, Keith, where are you? Keith, why aren't you here? Keith, why didn't you do this? Keith, why didn't you do that? And, and sometimes I'll even get a little lecture when I die. Like, oh, like, you should do this or you should do that. Or, and it's, I don't know. It's, I don't like the way it's being delivered. It's like barking. So the, ah. the, the vibes have gotten very negative. And when I die, I don't do that. And believe me, there are times when I want to. I'm not like, hey, why did you do this? Or why did you take us halfway across the map? Or why did you, you know, I don't do any of that. I tell myself that I suck because I'm self-deprecating. Or I get mad at the team that killed us because they're the opposing team. And that seems to be the right person to be mad at. (laughs) Exactly. And you know why I do those things, Tommy? Because I'm a good friend and I do not place blame on others that would be like if i was having technical difficulties on the podcast and i was texting you like tommy why did you make me do that tommy why are you destroying my computer tommy why aren't you here to fix this how would that make you feel if i did that i mean it would make me feel like i want to quit the goddamn show (laughs) exactly (laughs) and rightfully so so i reached a boiling point yesterday and i texted i hit the text and i was like guys i'm out i'm out of the squad the air has gotten too negative lately, and it's not fun, and that's it. And one guy apologized, and we kind of talked, and you know, they're like, hey, take a break. And I was like, yes, I'm going to take a break, but if it can't be fun like it used to be when we play, I am not going to play with you guys anymore. 
that's the whole point of playing the game. It's supposed to be stress relief, not stress inducing. That's stupid. I got yeah. it. Yeah. And to the third guy, I was like, you're cool. You've never done that. So you can hit me up anytime. <laughs> <laughs> you're cool. You're a dick. You're a dick. You're cool. I'm out. I'm out of here. Yeah. <laughs> and then I go through this whole mental tailspin. Like, am I being a dick? Am I? No, but I don't do that to those guys. I don't do that to them. So why are, why do they feel like they can do it to me? I have to advocate for myself, Tommy. I 100% agree with that. And I think it's one of those, um, I guess because I'm not involved in the online, like the, like online gaming. Um, yeah. I'm just so used to games that are not team formatted that aren't like a physical game, like, you know, like playing like soccer or, or lacrosse or something like that. It's like, I, that's a team sport and you, you work together, you coordinate, but there's also, I think with team sports, there's a whole element that's not in what you guys have, which is there's practice. Like you have practice and you pr- like go over what you're going to do in various scenarios. You guys are just kind of playing jazz and making it up as you go along. You can't get mad at people for making a decision that you don't necessarily agree with. It's like fucking play the game, dude, have fun. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. I was going to make a sports comparison. It would be like if we were out on the field and everyone's like piling on one guy. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Why? And, uh, you know, there's communication. We're all on microphones. We we communicate. We point to where we're going to go and say what we're going to do and all that stuff. And sometimes it goes well, but most of the time it doesn't. But listen, it's it's a tough game. It's a tough game and there's a lot of competitive players out there. This is the game all the YouTubers are making videos about lately, so there's a there's a lot of competition. But um, listen, I'm going to work it out. I'm going to work it out. If, if they can be cool, I can be cool. It's going to be okay. And you know what? If this is the biggest controversy I have going on in my life right now, then things have to be pretty good. Yeah, that's actually... What a good, <laughs> what a good perspective to have on it, too. And that's it. That's all that's going on. I got nothing else. That's a good thing to have. Yeah. I have T minus 10 days until nine days actually now until school is over. So are you going to do anything to celebrate the first day or anything? I'm going to drink a bottle of vodka and set off fireworks. <laughs> I know. I'm in it. I don't, I, I'll go to bed early and get up early the next day and celebrate the fact that I can go to the skate park any day of the week early as shit and play around with my kids and have a good time and not have to worry about, you know, the weekend warrior kind of crowd showing up. So it'd be really nice. That's good. That's good. When I'm, when I'm in the mood to celebrate, I buy a Joe tea half and half. It's this half lemonade, half iced tea that they only sell up here in New York, as far as I know. And then I order a chicken sandwich and fries from somewhere. And then I'm like, and then I, and I sign on to the game. I'm like, yes, this is it. We're going nuts. That's how I celebrate now. That's a good celebration, though. And that's it actually, I, I feel like that's something that, uh, I mean, it's not healthy because it's not good food, but at the same time, it's like, not like good for you, but at the yeah. same time, it's like, I, I think there's something to be said by holding off on stuff like that. And then once in a while, just indulging and being like, this is great. I'm going to have exactly. a Exactly. Of- you know what I do? I, I only have the drink once a week and I like it so much. And you know, I'm like. I'm like a fiend. So I have one and I'm like, I'm going to go get another one right now. And then I'm like, bro, no, only have one. (laughs) If you only have one a week, it will stay special forever. And it does. And the chicken sandwich, I only get like once every two weeks because I feel like garbage after I eat it. Uh, Are you talking about like Popeye's chicken sandwich, that kind of thing? 
I haven't had that one in a while. There's this one I order from a bar up here in Greenpoint. It's it's just like a fried chicken sandwich, but it's really good. Well, that's it. We're out of time. Uh, this episode is over. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to talk now to Peter Soros. Enjoy. All right, folks, we're here now with Peter Soros. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, dudes. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. We're, we're very excited to have you here. And folks, I was talking to Peter just now when we were getting set up. And here's an interesting tidbit. Northeast scene guest and our friend, Jimmy Rhodes, lives 15 feet from Peter in the basement, right, Peter? Well, he lives 15 feet from where I'm currently sitting. He lives about three blocks from my house. I am in a garage, my friend's garage, that we come here to find solace and relax. We built, our pandemic project was me and him built a bar in his garage. So oh, nice. Jimmy happens to live in the basement of my friend's house, which is three blocks from my house. So where I'm sitting right now could be 15 feet from Jimmy, but I think Jimmy's at the beach. Ah, uh, well, you know what? That's the place to be. How is the bar? I imagine like some dim lighting and maybe some tiki motif. Is there any of that going on? There's a little bit of that. We went for uh, kind of a uh, Art Deco 30s Hollywood kind of dark glamour-ish look. That sounds good. How much booze do you have in there? Is it like fully stocked? Oh yeah, oh it's fully stocked. If you if I turn if we had a video going right now, you would think I was at a legit bar. I actually <laughs> I, I imagine the bar in The Shining. That's what I think of right now. <laughs> yeah, sort of, sort of. So Peter, how are you doing today? How's everything going? I'm doing pretty good, man. I, I I've been running around crazy today. I uh, I work in a museum, and we're trying to get ready to reopen. I build all the exhibits and I handle the artwork. So my job is kind of kicked into full gear. And so I'm kind of running around like crazy and there's just a lot going on. So when you say you build the exhibits, what exactly does that entail? So it's a lot of strange stuff. A lot of people don't really even know that this profession exists. Um, I'm sort of a carpenter, but I'm also what you would call an art handler or an exhibition specialist. So some people just do one or the other. Some people handle the artwork and install it. And some people actually fabricate the cases or the mounts that hold the little piece of artwork or the object up. So I do all that sort of together. I have a wood shop at, uh, at my museum and I kind of do a little bit of everything. I'll hang a picture on the wall or I'll maybe make a, a box to have it shipped or handle it and make a mount for it out of brass or something so is it high pressure because i imagine you're dealing with some pretty expensive and rare pieces yes and no and it's it's a good it's a great question because when i started it was much more yes because i went to school for art and i was just i've been an artist my whole life and when i started doing this i got into this job as like a contractor in between touring as a musician um, cause I just kind of stumbled into it from, I worked at a frame shop and then I met a bunch of people who did this sort of thing for a company instead of a museum. And the first time I saw a painting that I had seen in a museum before or read about in a book, it was kind of intimidating. Say it's like a, a really famous, like, I don't know, Robert Motherwell painting or something that you've, you've studied and it's like a famous painting. You like, don't want to fuck it up or don't want to drop it or do 
the wrong thing or, but like any other job, you get used to it and you wouldn't be able to do it well if you were worried the whole time. So you kind of, there gets to a certain point early in your career, unless you are terrible at this, you end up kind of seeing the man behind the curtain and you look at the art as more of a widget that you're just doing a job with. And so you inherently become more careful, but by instinct, not really by, you know, by, by worrying about what you're doing because taking care of it well is part of the job. Does that make sense? That makes absolute sense. That's kind of how I approach this podcast. I'm yeah, so, no, that's great. I'm like, so I'm like so keyed in and so trying to be prepared. And I'm like, Oh my God, nothing can go wrong. What if I lose a whole segment and we have to do it all over again? <laughs> what like, so even when something goes wrong, it's still okay. So that's a, that's an interesting thing because part of it, to go back to your question, part of it is even when shit does go wrong and it goes really south or something breaks, there's usually a lot of nervous people around you. Mm-hmm. And so you have to be the one to not be phased by it outwardly because the more panic there is in the room, the worse it gets. Yeah. You just and kind of project confidence. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so if something breaks or falls, because they're in, they're in, this stuff is insured, you know, if, as long as it's not some stupid mistake, accidents happen. Sometimes things fall down. Sometimes they break, whatever. Sometimes a piece of art, like a piece of painting will just fall off the canvas or something. But if the curator and the, the, the conservationists that are there are all freaking out, you can kind of like control the scene by being more mellow and, and, and acting like you're in control, even if it's like an oh shit moment. So there's a little bit of like um, reading the room and getting through the issue instead of like losing your mind. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Thinking on your feet. And yeah. uh, now you said you work on exhibitions. Do you mm-hmm. ever joke with people and say, I'm an exhibitionist? I'm sure, it, I'm sure it's happened before. That's low-hanging fruit, but I'm sure, <laughs> I, I'm sure that that joke has happened. There's lots of lots of jokes at every job that are standard. Right. All right. So we've moved beyond that joke. That's good to know. Okay. <laughs> now, do you ever deal with any uh, eccentric art people? Like, I imagine this big crate comes in, and you got to unbox the painting, and there's a guy with like long silver hair and glasses and a beret, like <laughs> fluttering around and like Absolutely. you know all up in your space. Sometimes and. It, yeah, it runs the gamut. A lot of times, if you're working with big museums and there's generally professionals in those jobs that see that stuff come and go, but those nut jobs that you think about like in a movie, yeah. that's like the eccentric person is usually the artist themselves or the artist assistant or somebody from a gallery that's not a major museum. It's like they don't want you to touch it. They don't want you to look at it, but they want it to be <laughs> moved out of the crate. And into this spot. So you're like going to fucking levitate the thing. You can't, you have, (laughs) and so there's a little bit of like, you have to play nice and, you know, because you're doing a job for them and they're, they're paying the whoever a bunch of money to do this. So, but there is, I've been in some really insane situations with people who like, you're like, am I in a fuck it? Am I in a movie right now? Is this, is Ashton Kutcher going to come out and and prank me? (laughs) Cause this is so absurd. Can you share one of those experiences? Oh, oh, I got a fun story. I was moving. I used to work for this gallery that had some pretty uh, well-known artists that were working with them. And he 
was a pretty well-off dude. He was a fairly nice guy, but he, the, some of these people, they run in this tax bracket that you will never, ever be around these people. And the <laughs> only time I, I'm ever exposed to this is when I'm working with them, right? You would never be at their party, right? So have you ever heard of the art fairs that happen in Miami and New York City, like uh, Basel or Pulse? Or anything yeah, like that. Art Basel, yeah. Yeah, so they do one in down in Miami. There's Art Basel in Switzerland. But. So I was with the artist who we were showing his stuff and like, because he was represented by the gallery I was working for. And his stuff was really, he was, they're great. The, the art is great. It was more about the concept than his technical execution of how they were made sometimes. So sometimes they broke fairly easily. And sometimes artists, you know, they, they get a concept and they're not really worried about how to get it on the wall. They're, they're worried about making it look cool. Right. Anyway, they didn't want to rent a truck to move the thing. It was too big. So I had to take my van that was my band tour van and take all the seats out. And you know how a tour van is maybe 48 inches inside, but the door is shorter, smaller than that, the back door. Yeah. Yeah. It was like this round thing and it couldn't get out and it broke coming out and the gallery was tripping, but the dude wasn't tripping because guess what? His studio was two blocks away in Manhattan and it was the top floor of this giant building. And he was like, well, we'll just go get another one. And I'm like, all right, what kind of world is this where you can just go get this other one that costs this much money? So then we're taking the, we're taking the broken one out, trying not to break it more because it can be fixed and still sold for a lot of money. And he goes, Peter, Peter, wait, 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 wait. And I was, I froze because I thought I was breaking it. And he goes, check that out. And it was these two girls walking across the street. <laughs> and he had this like look like it was like a like an 80s movie. It was it was like ridiculous. I'm sitting here thinking like I'm fucked because I broke his thing. You know, but really he just wants me to stare at these girls. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I've, I've been looking for an opportunity to bring this up forever. Have mm-hmm. you, Peter, have you ever seen that movie? It's called Tim's Vermeer. It's a dude. He's like an inventor. He was like a guy. Uh, he was involved in like the early tech boom in like the mid nineties, and he, oh, he, did, he yes. just yeah, yes. yeah. So he thought that his kind of idea was that Vermeer didn't really paint as much as he used. Well, Reflection. he painted, but yeah, he uses the, the camera obscura to yes. be able to do yes. it. Fascinating. It, it's look. This guy has absolutely no art training, and he fucking paints this painting that is unbelievable but like all the the minutiae and the detail that go into everything like he learns how to build furniture like he learns like every single step that vermeer would have followed like he does it to the exact detail it's fucking unbelievable if you haven't seen it it's a great movie uh i think you get on youtube for like four bucks it's fucking it's worth your two hours it really it really is and it also kind of it's this window into not only this guy kind of deconstructing how Vermeer might have made this, these paintings. Cause there's not really, there's like what 14 paintings that exist by Vermeer in general. Yeah. And maybe a couple like rumored ones to have existed, but it's not like they were like walking around. Like there is a system for how they did painting then. And you had to go to a school, you had to get into school. You had to pass these, you had to go do this very rigorous life of, it was like, it wasn't like now where you can like flop around and, and, be weird and do what you want. <laughs> so to be able to be that disciplined makes you think that maybe these guys are actually inventing all this crazy science that hadn't happened yet because they're trying to like build a better mousetrap when they were making these paintings to look. They didn't have photographs to look at. They didn't have movies to watch. You know, p- people had paintings and they would be like, Hey, come over to look at this painting at my house. 
And that yeah. was their Friday night. And that always blew me away. Like when I would go to the art museum, I would be like, this is a good painting. And it's like, it looks, it's a horse. It looks like a horse. I can see the musculature. I can see like, you know, the details on like the, 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 you know, the woman's hair. And it's like, you know, it's, that's cool. But then I would like, look at some of the modern art and I go, I, I don't get this. Some of them I would have like a real reaction to them. Like, that's cool. I don't know why, but I like that. But then (laughs) there was a whole bunch of it going like, I, I don't I don't understand any of it. Well, that's sure. a square. Yeah. That's just a square. You're, you're looking at you know, and that's a valid that's a valid reaction to have. You're but you're looking at representation opposed to a different kind of representation, right? So b- the paintings that you're saying this is like photorealistic and amazing. I can't believe somebody executed this by hand. That was the point at the time, but then later getting maybe a bigger concept across with how colors worked against each other and these things. So like they seem, they seem kind of small and pointless if you kind of like look at the big picture sometimes, but to be able to move the world of art from having to only be in one niche to dudes playing hardcore music, you know what I mean? It's like, there's a huge spectrum that got opened up from uh, impressionism and abstract expressionism and all these people who like, were like, I'm going to go against the grain and make some crazy looking shit. And eventually it got accepted. It's like, it's, I, I'm not, I'm not invalidating. I'm just giving you another perspective of the way you could look at, I used to be the same way when I was young. I used to hate what I quote modern art because I thought pictures of battles and knights and all that was like the greatest thing, you know? Yeah, no, that, that's a great point because I'm not too familiar with the art world, but a while, a little while ago, I went to the Philadelphia museum of art and there's this famous piece in there. It's like a urinal. Some artist, yeah. they a- they asked him for a commission or something. So I think he just bought a urinal. Duchamp. Yeah, and just yeah. gave it to them. I was like, that's punk as fuck. I like that. <laughs> yeah, he, I mean, he's pre- he, he was presenting. I forget what the names of these things were, were called. It's been, I don't know, I, I feel stupid for not remembering. You know, he's presenting something in a different context. And that's what a lot of that kind of sculpture was. It, it's saying here, because it's in a gallery, we give it some kind of value and it becomes important in a different way mm-hmm. based on what the artist says it means instead of just what it is. Right. I made for my senior thesis in art school, it's kind of silly now, but it's the con the concept was like, what's the difference between an artifact, like a historical artifact, like a, like a, a tool you might find from somebody who a very totalitarian tool and a piece of art and how one is looked at as, very revered and one is looked at as totalitarian and i was looking at it like what if somebody found my skateboard 500 years from now would they think it was just a child's toy or would they understand that it was something that like created the persona of me and so many people in my generation and we were connected to that's really cool because that is like a really great thinking in terms of like all right is this is this something that people just utilize and it's like a tool to get something done? Or is this actually a work of art? That's a really cool idea. I like that. I, I my big experience with art was, I remember I had uh, art appreciation in high school yeah. and my teacher uh, was really good. I went to an all boys private school just outside Philadelphia. And I remember oh, wow. they were like, you know, I, I got to see like really cool paintings and really cool photography. And I remember the one that kind of blew me away was, uh, and I, I was like, I went, you know, keep in mind, it was a Catholic school. Uh, he showed us a bunch of, um, what's that dude's name? Robert Maplethorpe. Oh yeah. Showed us a bunch yeah. of those. And I remember like looking, we all kind of looked at each other like, are we allowed to look at this? 
there's some pretty fucking wild stuff in here, man. Like this is like, I don't know if my mom would be real happy with this. (laughs) Yeah. I I went to a a school in DC that was going to have a big Maplethorpe. I think it was a retrospective. This is in the late seventies, early eighties, maybe they, cause it was part of the, I went to the, the Corcoran college of art and design in DC and it was an old art museum as well as a college. They were going to have this, Maplethorpe show and they got boycotted by like every group in America to have the show. Cause it was like, this is pornography, this is pornography. And, um, the school ended up, I guess, caving, but enough of the artists and students and everybody associated with the museum got together and just projected the, the photographs like 50 feet across on the side of the building oh, <laughs> at night. And the, the, it's crazy because the building is across the street from the white house, literally across the street. Oh, that's crazy. So it was like a statement on top of a statement. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like I, that. I just remember being in that class being like, he would show us things and he was like, this is, um, uh, Serrano. And he would be like, it's like a crucifix in urine. And we're like, Holy yeah, you gotta get shit. you gotta get you gotta get led into that. You can't just like say, "Here's this thing." Yeah, no, that wasn't day one, but I definitely right. remember it was like when he moved into kind of um, like away from like traditional art, even like modern, like more into the photography elements of it. And I remember being like, "Whoa, dude, yeah. <laughs> this is pretty wild." Like this seemed like the more not outlandish, but the more kind of like. Um, not even offensive. What's the word I'm looking for? There was something about it that was like, it it was intended and made to kind of like spark discussion. And that's what my teacher kind of brought to the point was like, look, as much as you guys, you might love this, you might hate it. You might be fucking completely indifferent to it. We're talking about it though. We're discussing these things. This is, that's important with art. Like it's just the discussion around it too. Sure. And And you know what, you know, one of the, I think most valuable classes I had in art school when you're everybody's young and impressionable, it was a, like a theories class. It wasn't like a a hands-on art class. It was a theories class. And we spent the entire semester mapping out the 20th century because this is, I think probably before the year 2000 mapping out the 20th century with, you know, every, every five years we had up on the board and every class we would have to come in with something historically significant that happened in that decade or that five year increment. And then we would talk about the art from that same time and how it reflected what was happening in the world culturally and in society. And so once you start to see the correlation between those two, like all the crazy shit that was happening in the sixties and the 50s and communism and the end of World War II, you, you know, you start to really understand a lot of this conceptual art a lot more when you start to understand what was going on in the world and why people were kind of bouncing around to all these different ideas. So there's a lot of ways to skin the cat. And by leading you from point A to point B, by going A, point one, point two, point three, point three, it makes a lot more sense. Peter? Yeah. Tell us about where you grew up. I grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, which is... Um, Isn't that like right across from D.C.? It is. Yeah, it's about 15 miles from D.C. Um, on the Virginia side of the Potomac River in a suburban neighborhood. Uh, I, we moved there when I was four, and 
I grew up, I spent the first four years on an army base. Both my parents were in the army. They met in, they met in the army and, um, they got out of active duty and my dad got a job in the government doing intelligence work in DC. And my mom was, got into being a freelance writer. And so we moved to DC because they had great schools. Tell us about a little bit about your musical past. Have you always been into music or was it something you got into later? Yeah, yeah, definitely. My, my mom comes from a very musical family. My dad, not at all, really. And I grew up listening to lots of country western mm-hmm. and some like classic rock, but mainly a lot of like outlaw country. And it's like George Jones and Waylon and a lot of guys like that. And it was always on. My mom always was playing on the eight tra- the eight tracks in the car. And then once I started discovering music on my own, maybe say fourth grade, when I got into like this hair metal is really big. Mm-hmm. So I went from like Huey Lewis and like pop music to like Bon Jovi and Poison, like a lot of kids did my age when MTV MTV was super big. Yeah. Um, my mom got really into that too because she liked rock music. So she would kind of like encourage that and take me to the record store. We buy ta- I'd buy a tape once, a, you know, every, once every month or something like that. So music was always around and my mom really encouraged it. And I used to play, I played me, I played in band from elementary school on. I played trumpet and then I played the tuba and I played the violin, but I didn't like any of them really. I was just doing it because I liked music. Then I started playing guitar maybe in like sixth grade or something like that. And that's when I kind of like took a step back from trying to do the organized band stuff to really just doing that kind of music. And then from skateboarding, which I got into when I was really young, I was eight when I started skating. My brother, who's a little bit older than me, two years older than me in school, he had a lot of friends that skated. I didn't really have any friends my age. So maybe in about sixth or seventh grade, I started skating with them, and those kids turned me into turned me on to punk. That seems to be the most common conduit is skating to punk rock. It really is because that skateboarding, just like punk rock, you had this this kind of really special subculture where old older kids would take younger kids in under their wing, and you mm-hmm. don't you didn't have that anywhere else, right? You didn't have that in like. The, foot, the seniors in the football team weren't taking the freshman kids out to the fucking keg party, you know? Right. It wasn't the same thing. Don't get me wrong. I liked going to keg parties, but it was very different to be able to be, you know, what you 14 years old in the ninth grade, hanging out with kids who are 18 and 19 going to shows and saying, Hey, have you heard this band? Have you heard this band? And so like, I don't know where else, where else you would be around older people who are kind of helping you cultivate and kind of paying it back because it happened to them. Like the people, the older people that I was skating with, they got me into punk and then ultimately hardcore. They had had the same thing happen to them just in the late eighties instead of the early nineties like me. Back then were skaters like outcasts still? Because when I was, when I was young, if you listened to metal or hardcore or anything like that you were a complete outcast and by the time my younger sister went to high school she's like oh i hang out with the skaters and i was like what like that you're seeking that group 100 it was like girls talk to me despite the fact that i was a skateboarder not because of (laughs) right and in my high school there was like 10 people who skated out of like 2000 yeah yeah 
you know, cut, cut to like 10 years later, once the X games comes out and it gets like more popular and there's an internet, it's totally cool. And people get into it because it's like a, a thing, but you used to have to fight. You used to have to try really hard to do it. And you, you couldn't find information about it. It was very underground the way, the way that like punk music used to be. And if you stuck with it, it meant you really cared. A lot of people started, you know, when they were like you know, sixth grade, seventh grade, and then they quit. But if you stuck with it, you were you cared. And the same way, the metal kids in my high school, metal kids and skateboarders kind of had a, a truce going. <laughs> but the smarter skateboarders that I knew liked Slayer and Metallica, whereas I looked at that as a different world. In retrospect, I should have been wise to Slayer metallica and megadeth when i was younger but i thought that it was too weird because these guys were wearing like reebok high tops and super tight pants and it was like weird (laughs) cut cut to like 2005 and that's what like literally every kid walking in the mall is dressed like these metal kids when i was in high school but whatever you live you you live and you learn that was one of those things i had the same experience growing up peter because i i grew up skateboarding and uh it was one of those things that because you skateboarded, you kinda kinda had that like uh that scarlet letter of like, oh, you're one of those guys. Like right. uh and it must it, be bad or something. Yeah. Or, and it's yeah. like, you know, one of the things like my mom was real big on like you must do well in school. Like my uh-huh. mom would come I, every time I came home with a report card or anything, and she made it a great incentive. Like if you do well in school, you'll be re- you want to get a new skateboard, you can go get a new skateboard. You want new wheels, let's go get new wheels. Mm-hmm. But um my mom always kind of was like, you know, she would drop me off to go skate with my friends and she would just look at the kids I was skating with and kind of shake her head. Like (laughs) I send you to this nice school and yet this is who you choose to spend your time with. You know, there's, you have kids at your school that their parents are pharmaceutical executives. Like, and, and you pick the kids down the street that, you know, have long stringy hair and, you know, smoke cigarettes. And it's like, yeah, these are fun people. These yeah, are the- and, so, and sometimes, sometimes they look like Tony Hawk and sometimes they look like the Alva team from the 1980s or the <laughs> Dorlac team. Yeah. And you can't, you, and you have, you still have an affinity for them because you both skateboard. And you, you, know, it's, you can't change that. And it's, uh, I came up in the, the era of, uh, like the, the two big things when I was skating was zero and then shorties. And it was like the, are you one of the guys that's like zero with like tight pants and like punk rock stuff or yeah. like shorties was like big baggy jeans and like, you know, sideways hats and everybody had a Chad Muska board and it was like yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. But um, there was still that like, you know, when you would see each other around, you'd be like, you skate, you're all right. Like, yeah, we're good. Oh, for sure. I remember going up to being, I had to go to summer school one year and this one kid in my class had a, had a, had a, a skateboard shirt. And I just remember going, Oh, what's up, man? You skate? He was like, yeah, dude. And then we were just like friends. Yep. <laughs> I miss when it was that easy. So, uh, Peter, how, what was your, did you have a game plan in high school where you like, I'm going to be a musician and this is what I'm going to do? Or what was, what was your, your thought process at the time? I always just assumed I was going to become an artist and go to art school. I, mm. I, I hated high school. I kind of just suffered through it. My parents were not worried uh i guess they were worried about how well i did in school but they weren't really ever asking me about it and all i cared about was skateboarding and going to hardcore shows and i just kind of always felt like i don't have to do well in school because i'm gonna get into art school Ah. i'm gonna get into art school so i don't have to do it i don't have to finish this and then i was like oh shit i 
all my friends are graduating and I have like five years worth of classes to finish. And, um, I just kind of like buckled down and my parents had to pay for summer school twice for me to finish because I was, I fucked off. So, so hard. Now that being said, I had an awesome time in high school cause I didn't do anything. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't like, I don't remember doing homework like once because I, all I cared about was skating and hanging out with my friends and going to shows. And to, at that point, music, I always wanted to be in bands. And I think I probably played the first, my first couple of shows when, with bands of some kind of uh, formation when I was in 10th grade, 11th grade, but hardcore didn't seem like something that was like a career path then, you know, yeah. like only a few bands were touring nationally anyway at that time, like the Snapcase or Earth Crisis were like touring, but it was very local. Like you're the Northeast scene, a lot of bands we'd see all the time because they were close enough to drive in a day, you know, but I didn't really ever think that that was, it's strange because I understood that these people were like me and it wasn't like they were on a pedestal or anything. But to me, I think because I had this background of being an illustrator and, a, and an artist, I always just assumed that was what I was going to do and go on to do that. So it's kind of like two muscles in my, that e- work equally in me. And when I don't work on music, I work on art more and when I, don't work on art, I work on music more. But I didn't know that then. I just assumed art was what I had to do. Yeah, that's interesting. So it's like music wasn't even a primary focus at the time. And you mentioned, you know, not putting the folks up on a pedestal, which I did because I, I don't know, I, I, everyone just seemed so much more older than me. And it's like, even with this podcast, I, I was like trying to figure out the secret code of like, what did these guys do to make these bands work? And I realized everyone is pretty much just like me. They just started a band with their friends and it took them different places. Yeah. I mean, that's very true. And that's a really good, that's a really good point you bring up because I'm sure that when I first saw the bands that I had, you know, been obsessing over their seven inch or something, when I first saw them, I was probably starstruck in some respect, but then there was a lot of times where I'd actually go up to the guys and talk to them and they were super nice, you know? And so you start to kind of understand more that, they're not different from you. They just are maybe a little older. And I think I might've assumed that, okay, they're older. They can, they're able to make these decisions. I'm in high school still going to see these bands. Yeah. I, we were in front of a gig one time and my buddy was like, oh, there's the singer for whatever. And let's go talk to him. And I was like, I don't want to talk to him. That's weird. <laughs> and then we went up and talked to him and he was like super humble and nice. And it was like a very enlightening because, oh, and I'm, I, I, I'm saying this and I, I getting the memory coming back to me of almost feeling like that guy was my friend then at that point, even though I'm sure he didn't remember me after a day. Right. But for me, the impression that I got was like, Oh yeah, yeah, we talked. We're cool. Like he must remember me when he comes back to town, you know? But that's because he's nice. And it's not like Nikki six is going to remember your fucking name. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) So, no, I know what you're saying because I used to do that. I would I would be on a tour with someone and then a year later, I'd see them. I'd be like, hey, do you remember me from this thing? And they'd be like, uh, yeah. Dude, it's funny you say that because I think about that all the time. Fairweather and Olympia did – Olympia was the band I was in after Fairweather. We did a lot of tours. We did a lot of shows and we played with a lot of bands. And a lot of those bands went on to be much, much bigger bands. 
And so you, I would have to remind myself that my two weeks I spent with that band was one of a thousand two weeks that that band had with other people. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, oh yeah, I know that guy. We're like, we're like, cool. But really that guy has so many of me. <laughs> yeah. It's hard, it's hard to, to, to juggle them all. And it's nice that when one of them still even remembers, you know? Exactly. It's exactly. Like, it's like the fight club, uh, single serving friend thing. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a perfect, it's a perfect, uh, analogy. Cause like me, I, I went on two tours selling merch for a friend's band. And so those memories, a lot of them are burned into my brain forever, but a band that's been touring for eight years, you know, they might not remember that guy from that yes. one tour that one time. Yeah, exactly. Especially those bands that take out different merch people all the time. Yeah. Um, and they're, they just tour, 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 tour so hard. And, you know, you can't really blame them. Like, I remember there'd be times when I'd be like, fuck this dude. I thought we were bros and he's like blowing me off. But really like <laughs> he's got this whole life outside of those two weeks, you know, he's yeah. got a whole life with all kinds of shit going on. And maybe those two weeks were like the worst two weeks of his life. Cause his mom was sick and his girlfriend dumped him. You know, who, who knows, you know, I, the older you get, the more you have to really kind of like people got their own shit going on and you can't like carry that around with you anymore. But I've definitely, I definitely feel you. And I've been in those, I've been in those situations. That is a tough and important lesson to learn. And I still have to remind myself daily, like even with the podcast, I'll reach out to someone and be like, Hey, come on. And they don't respond. And I'm like, they're dead to me. And then, <laughs> and, then, and then they get back to me like a day later. They're like, oh, sorry, I was busy. And I'm like, oh, right, I'm crazy. Like the world doesn't revolve around me. Yeah, that, that's very true. That you can get busy. Like I'll look at my phone and be like, I will respond to that later. This is very important. I will respond to it. And then, oh, shit, there's a new handmade tale on tonight. At, I, then I'm asleep and the next day happens and I forget yes that's the worst i did that the other that used to be my biggest pet peeve someone you know when i had like many fewer people in my life i'd be like i can't believe they didn't respond to my message how could they ever do that and now i do that and i'm like <laughs> like it's the worst feeling that's why you can't have your t your phone on read text messages you can't let them know you read it oh shit how do you turn that off <laughs> settings my friend you, right. you there's a youtube about it i'm all sure right. all right yeah the, yeah i'm gonna double check that too so. <laughs> yeah. holy shit i didn't even think that was a thing all right it's somebody just sent yeah. me a text earlier today and i was like ow i'm not gonna i'm gonna ignore that so peter let's talk about the the beginning of your musical career okay uh, some early bands leading into fairweather well i played a couple shows with some friends in high school and that got me kind of like into the scene like i was saying i met some older guys through skateboarding and we did a we, they were in bands i played guitar and i think that they they liked the way i play guitar i was the younger kid clearly but we played a couple shows like at venues in dc first show i played was at this place called asylum which used to be in this other part of town and it was an amazing bar that was like a cool rock club for a long time and it was a matinee and we were opening for shelter and we played like two and a half songs or something like that. Cause like, it was like my friends that were in my quote band were in a band that was actually on the bill. So <laughs> we played three songs as the opening, opening band. Then shelter was six hours late, but everybody hung around because it was 1992. So that's what you did. Whoa. But 
those guys I stayed in touch with. And once I, maybe a year out of high school, a friend reached out and said, I know these guys that are looking for a guitar player. And he put me in touch with this other group of people that I didn't know, but they knew through the hardcore scene, which also like, so I'm 18. These other guys are like in their early twenties. And so it was kind of like a whole different world because at that point, when you make the jump to people who are like old enough to be in bars, it's Mm -hmm. kind of a different bracket. Right. And, um, so I went out and I started playing with these dudes and I'm still lifelong friends with some of them. We're trying to play hardcore and it was a little weird. And I remember being like a little intimidated and not wanting to speak my mind about, I thought that this part was bad and we should change it, but I was just so happy to do it. And they were a little older than me. So I was a little intimidated. That band morphed into another band, morphed into another band. And we had played enough shows and kind of like had a little bit of a following in DC. And then we decided to form a new band with some other dudes and one of the same guys. And that became a band I was in for a bunch of years called Wake Up Cold, which was a hardcore band that was very like tough guy hardcore. And this is when I was like probably 21 to 24 maybe 20 to 23 or something like that, 24. We, we put out a bunch of records, a bunch of seven inches. We played around the East coast a bunch and had really cool shows in DC and Baltimore and did fairly well. And I thought that it was like, almost like I had made it. It was awesome. You know, like there's sing-alongs at the shows and super fun. And I started getting really kind of tired of the violence at the shows because this is like, late nineties, early two, early two thousands in DC, Baltimore. We played New Jersey a bunch. We played Southern Maryland a lot. We played, you know, New York. And I was getting more into melodic hardcore anyway at that time. And I think that maybe it was because I was just kind of like burnt out on this kind of like, I love moshy hardcore. I love metal hardcore. It's, it's like so ingrained in me, but I didn't like the vibe of these shows. I just thought it was shitty after a while. And around that same time when I felt like my time with this genre had run its course is when I met Ben from Fairweather at art school. And it was kind of serendipitous that I was in class with one of his good friends and she said, Oh, you're in a band. My friend's in a band. And then we kind of just met and they had just made their demo and that kind of put me on the path towards Fairweather because I kind of wanted a way out at that time. And it's not like it, it's not like it was the mafia, but I, I, I felt like I couldn't, you know, you, was, you, you build something for so long and it felt scary to try to start my own thing, especially I could probably make a new band and book a show in a world of people who didn't want to hear the kind of music that I wanted to play. So I kind of didn't really know what to do with myself. Ben and Fairweather had just recorded their demo and they had just signed to EVR and they had played a bunch of shows, a handful, I, I, let's say a handful of shows, 12 shows or something. And I got a call from Ben saying that they're, this is while I'm still in school. I would say like my junior year in college that their other guitar player had gotten sick and they had a tour booked and they needed somebody for like 30 days in starting in two days. 
Wow. So I went to over to his parents' house and I learned the whole record and we played in Philadelphia the next night. And then we played 30 shows. Wow. Jesus. And I went back to school thinking that was awesome. I made lifelong friends with Ben and Jay who were in the band and they had another tour booked that I knew was happening in the summertime. This is like a spring tour. It was with Thursday and Sky King Falling in 2000 and 2000 or 2001. I don't know. Then their guitar player got sick again and they said, Hey, can you do this West coast full U S tour? And I was like, okay, well I was going to work for the summer, but I don't, I'll never have another opportunity to tour again. This is my one time to do it. So I did it. And then that guy quit the band. And at that point I had played more shows than the other guitar player had. So it was kind of just like a, a simple move to be in the band. And then we did the Alaska record right after that. How did that feel? Because I mean, you're, you're, you hook up with these guys, they're signed to equal vision, a classic label with so many good releases. You're going out on these tours with great bands. It was amazing. I got to tell you, like it was amazing and somewhat strange and bittersweet at the time because I was looking at it at the time as the one year that I was going to do this and then get back to my life in art. Right. I wasn't looking at it as like, this is what I'm going to do. This was like, these guys are giving me this great opportunity and I love hanging out with them. And I love this music, but this is just sadly a one stop on my trajectory back to being an artist because I still had some more art school to go to. And Ben had dropped out of school and Jay had dropped out of school to do the band full time. But to go into that question a little bit more, I had been playing in this hardcore band for four years driving my car to shows with four different cars playing with like fucked up gear playing these like shitty vfws where like nazis would come and fight everybody and it was just like a fucking nightmare and we had sold a good amount of records to have people caring about that band so for me starting to tour with fairweather to these gigs where people all over the country where people would come to the shows felt like the most amazing thing in the world because I felt like I had already put in so much time in the trenches doing it a different way. Finally, it was like almost like my reward. I was looking at it like my reward and the other dudes were like a little younger. And so things would bother them on tour more than they would bother me. Cause I was like coming from a perspective of, I didn't go right to college after high school. I spent four years working in a bar and I decided to go to college because I would thought I was going to become a graphic designer. And I was like, I need a job to make money, but I was still living on my own and paying my rent. So for me, that kind of tour was like vacation because the worst day on tour is better than the best day at work. <laughs> yeah. If you think about it that way, like for me, it was never work because work sucks. I didn't like it's, it's either that or work in a bar. And if I'm going to make enough money to eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, they're going to feed me food at the venue. We might get a buyout. We might not. We get a per diem. It's 10 bucks. And this is back, you know, 2001 when you can get a lot of shit for $10. And a beer was 50 cents at a bar. And sometimes you got drink tickets. Like, it was fine. You could live. And for me, it was amazing. So I really felt like I, I, I was appreciating it a lot more than a lot of people my age were because I had done that music in a different way for so long. 
and not that the other guys didn't appreciate it, but they were definitely coming from a different perspective. And I think that the, the thought that I had of that it was going to end made me appreciate it more in the moment. Ah, I see. Yeah. So how much older were you than the other guys? When I met Ben, I think Ben's six years younger than me. I think he was 18 and I was 24. And Jay is two or three years younger than me. So Jay, not so much. And Shane, who's been in the band since pretty much I've been in the band, he's only a couple years younger than me. So, you know, it's not a lot. But as far as having done bands, it wasn't my first band. But yeah. it, was, it was their first real band. And when you're younger, those age gaps seem a lot bigger. Like when I, I was 28 in a band with 33-year-olds, and they seemed super old to me, and I seemed like a baby to them. So it's like... Oh, totally. Yeah. And when I, when I say that it was a different perspective, those guys brought a different perspective to me to open my eyes to things in a different way than I wasn't, that I wasn't used to. Yeah. Like they were coming from this cool scene in dc that i wasn't really a part of because i was more of a part of this tough guy hardcore scene so i was constantly having to unlearn what i knew with these guys in a different way too so it was like we were kind of just like all in it coming from different perspectives but it all because our personalities worked really well so it all worked in in some way the age thing was only different because of like where we were in school at that era you know yeah because you were in the tough guy hardcore band, were you like a tough guy? Would you go to beat someone up and they'd be like, nah, man, we don't do that here. I never liked fighting. <laughs> I've been in a, a few fights and I regret every single bit of it. Yeah. And um, I did, though, have a chin strap and gauge earrings oh. for a little while. And there's really awesome evidence on the internet of my chin strap era. Listen... You're a product of the mid to late 90s. We get it. We get it. Peter, basketball jerseys, yes or no? Oh, 100%. Gotcha. <laughs> 100%. Camo, big camo shorts, basketball jerseys, and New Balance. <laughs> there you go. That's the uniform, man. And thank God I didn't have enough money to get all the tribal tattoos I wanted to get at that time. Oh, oh my God. Because yeah. I got a really bad one. Oh. Luckily, I didn't get any more. <laughs> I'm glad I couldn't afford tattoos until I was 35. Because then I, God. I stopped at two. I was like, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> there really was like a uniform back then, though. Like, mm -hmm. if you wore this, there's actually, there's a video someone shared on YouTube with me. And they were like, hey, I found an old video of Dillinger and you're in it. And it's Dillinger Escape Plan in like 1998 or 1999 in some garage in Warminster. And somebody, like, the, the first comment is like, wow, did everybody get the memo about wearing white t-shirts and camo shorts? And it's like, every, yes. there's like 15 <laughs> guys in the front row and every oh single God. one of them is wearing the exact same outfit. <laughs> it's like, it's like identical. It's like, oh shit, that is. And you, I, you know what's funny about that too? Because that time that you're talking about is also at the same time, there was this whole other world of hardcore that was like tight black sweaters and black pants and Beatles haircuts. Um, oh yeah the spot right? core thing yeah right and the refuse were dressed like that i remember seeing refuse when they first put out a record and they played with earth crisis in dc and i was like what the fuck are these guys dressed like the beatles what is going on <laughs> <laughs> because i was like probably wearing a wife beater walking around thinking i looked awesome because i just didn't know you know i it was like my little world i did, didn't know and now look back there's a lot of bands that dress like that and because they were whatever i don't know <laughs> no, I, I the first time i remember uh 
my friend uh, Anthony had given me um, a Charles Bronson record. And I was like, fucking sick. These guys are like crusty, kind of like fast, hardcore. This is great. And then I saw a picture of the singer, Spock haircut, like super tight T-shirt. I'm like, that's that's not what I expected these dudes to look like. It's weird what you p- uh, present in your head as as something, you know. Got to get over that. <laughs> I thought they were going to dress like the guys from Spaz. What happened? <laughs> like, <this> is- <laughs> so now you're pl- you're touring with Fairweather. You're in the band full time. Is there a shift where you're like, this is what I'm going to do? This is awesome. Yeah, there was sort of a shift because by the time I quote joined the band, I was closer to the end of college, so we sort of decided to do it in between the times that I was in school. So, you know, the summer and weekend shows and spring break, that sort of thing. And we did that for about a year and a half. But once we kind of solidified the lineup after I joined the band is when we, it was kind of like, this is what we're going to do. This is it. And I never wanted to do anything else. Mm -hmm. I I had totally fell in love. I probably, I fell in love with doing it, the first night we played together, but I, like I said, I didn't think it was going to be a thing, but then when it became a thing, I was all in like fully all in. I didn't want to do anything else ever. So once I finished school, we just did it full time. We almost did a full time. Uh, they, they were doing a full time while I was there. There was like another year that between when I did those tours and when I joined the band, they were on tour for like 10 months that year. Then once I did it, we had kind of an off and on year. And then we went full bore for like two or three more years or something like that. But it was just like, this is what we're going to do. We all wanted to do it. We were getting more, we were getting a little bit more success as far as like our guarantees were getting a little bit bigger. Shows were getting bigger. And, it, and I say that we never really got to the point where it was like crazy and we were quote successful, but we were paying our rent. We all lived together and we paid our rent. And so for me, if we can go and play a show at a college one weekend and pay our rent for three months, it's fine. I was just like, this is it. I'll do this forever. You know, you're 26, 25, 26. You know, I didn't have, I might've had a cell phone bill that was like 20 bucks a month. And that was it. There's not as much to consider in your early to mid twenties. Totally. And you, and you can make those kind of, it's not like a, it's not like a, a, a balance that you have to find, like, where's my living condition going to be where I want it to be? Do I need to make enough money? It was like, all I cared about was the show and that's what we did. And we tried really, really hard to do it. And we had a couple years where it was really amazing where we didn't have to work jobs. So that's awesome. Yeah. That's, you know, what always makes me think about that kind of like time of like playing music and like, kind of like, living this kind of like makeshift lifestyle. We just kind of throw things together and see what works is, uh, I'd never been super huge into it, but, uh, that Mike Kinsella project, it's called Owen. Oh yeah. I love Owen. He has a song called bad news. And I remember listening to it and I, I remember the first time I heard it, I really stopped for a second. I was like, Oh shit. Like there's a line in there where he says, uh, free beer and basement shows don't mean you made it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> fuck. Like, I thought, like, because I was, like, in a band with my friends and had fun, like, this was, like, everything. And then I look back on it and go, like, 
Oh man, that's what a or or Owen is talking shit about a specific person that thought that they had made it or whatever because it's all about what you feel like you did. You know, like nobody can take that away from you, and nobody can take away what the where the success you felt like you had success. Like I said, like if we could show up in Seattle and the people knew the words to the songs that I wrote, I was successful. And I never thought I wanted to do it for the rest of my life, but I never thought that I was going to make money really. You know what I mean? So like, I think the bar for being happy, it sounds bad, but it was so low that anything above was just gravy. Right. And, and that's the kind of mentality I've always had about it. So somebody's idea, you know, they get famous out of the gate. And then they're bitter their whole their whole career because they might not be as famous anymore. Whereas for me, like I worked my ass off and I did this thing. And you even want me? You want me to do this podcast? I feel like a rock, a superstar right now <laughs> being on doing this. I'm forty four years old. You know this is awesome. That is a that is a very healthy perspective, and uh, it, I try to keep myself grounded a lot too. I think I was just mad for a long time because maybe I wasn't in enough bands or they didn't work out the way that I wanted to, but I realize now it, it, I guess it just wasn't what was supposed to happen. You know? Yeah. No, I feel, I, I feel that I, I understand. I totally understand what you mean. Yeah. Cause everyone, like I mentioned before, everyone got together with friends and made bands and some went further than others. And you know, mine went where they went and what, that's not my path. That's not my path, but I'm here now talking to you on this podcast and I love putting this podcast together every week, and that's enough. That's a beautiful. That's a beautiful way to say it because you know some of these people that their bands got big, their bands sucked, whatever. <laughs> yeah. But some of them didn't, and they deserved it. And it's just about where you happen to be that day doing that shit, and you can't change a lot of that stuff. And now I'm not trying to say that I was never pissed and never bitter throughout right. my career because there was a lot of that like oh yeah fairweather turned into a thing where we were very frustrated we were always great friends and i think that we always were very positive people but watching the music industry change in the early 2000s and then this trajectory through the 2010s it was kind of a bummer when you were there in like this golden era of touring when people were happy to have any band come to their town you know, it, a lot changed. And so I don't want to act like I was Mr. Fucking Sunshine all the time. But definitely, like you're saying, you took a right when you could have taken a left. And that was your decision to do at the time. So what are you going to like backpedal your whole life and be mad about that? Like, no, you got to move forward, right? Exactly. So th- that's interesting what you bring up some of the changes and what were some of the changes? How did things in the band change and how did it affect the band? We had some issues with the kind of the scene changing around us. Like a lot of, this is, this is a time when major labels were trying to scoop up every band and booking agents were trying to get with the bands that would be the most financially beneficial immediately at the moment. And we were having a hard time finding tours that, made sense because tours were getting put together by managers instead of the bands. We would, we would get lots of, we would get lots of friends from bands that were 
doing well, asking us if we wanted to do tours. And then we'd say yes. And then hear that their management had chosen this other band that they were managing to be the opening band or the main support band or the, the band that's going to Europe for a month, you know? So it got kind of disheartening because we also didn't want to do anything we didn't want to do. So we didn't want to take tours with bands that we didn't respect or thought we weren't on board with. And some other bands were more willing to do that sort of thing. We kind of like got ourselves into a corner. Like, do we, do we make this jump? It got to this point. Okay. Let me say it this way. It got to a point where either we had to get to the next level because we were getting a little bit older and we needed to earn more. We had, it was costing more to do stuff. You were still getting paid the same amount of money in the bill if you were the opening band or the second main support or whatever. Drives were getting longer for the bigger tours. So money got different. Bands were, like I said, the whole management thing was a weird thing. We never had a manager because we didn't want to have a manager. And thank goodness we had Equal Vision at that time who were really in our corner the whole time. But we didn't want to take tours of band that we thought fucking sucked and we didn't we didn't we just didn't want to do that so we kind of shot ourselves in the foot by saying well we're just not going to do that in retrospect i feel like we never did anything we didn't want to do so i'm happy to say that but it got to the point where also the other guys in the band had been we've been going so hard for a long time that we either had to step it up a notch or we had to take a step back and some of the other guys had girlfriends and they wanted to have a break. And some of us didn't want to have a break and we wanted to keep going. And so we either had to like keep going harder to the next level or we had to chill. And we decided that the best way for us to stay friends was to just call it quits because we weren't having a lot of luck. Like we didn't get, it was, it got to a point where like we weren't getting shows and we weren't getting tours because I don't know. We didn't have a, this management team. And this is like, I want to say 2003 when these, these, it became this record industry thing. And we didn't have these people fighting for us in our corner. We got dropped by our booking agent. And that was like, almost like the last thing to crumble was there. We, if we didn't have a booking agent, we didn't have a manager. We didn't really have an option because we're in this world where we can't just like play for no money because we have to drive and we have to rent to pay. So either we get jobs or we somehow make more money and making more money didn't really seem like an option. So we're going to go out like Seinfeld and was stopped on our own. Like we just decided to call it quits. That's good because then it's your guy's decision. Everyone stays friends, which is good. And you know, you don't burn out and change all the members and just keep pressing on. So what happened when it was over? Did you have a plan? Did you want to start up a new band? Did you still want to be in music? Yeah. Um, I never wanted to stop, but I understood that the other guys did. Mm-hmm. And so we all respected each other's wishes and we did like, I think everybody took a break, a little bit of a break. I did, like you were saying, I did the merch thing with a couple bands for maybe a few months just because touring was just all I knew how to do. And I didn't have anywhere to live. I started a band with Shane, the drummer from Fairweather. We started Olympia with another friend of ours almost as quick as we could. And we did that 
for three, four years after that. So we went kind of jump headfirst back into the whole thing. And we put out a record on Equal Vision in 2006 and seven, And that band ended in 2010 because it was kind of like the same thing happened again. And I said that I was always positive, but this got very negative. We, it was like the beginning of the MySpace time yes. when this band and like we started playing a lot of shows and it was a lot of fun. And then we were watching a lot of these bands come up on MySpace that had never played a show before and were getting gigs for a lot of money. And we were a little bit older by then. I'm in my late twenties. I turned 30 when I was in that band. And so we all had our own apartments. And so we had more, we had more at stake. Mm -hmm. Right. And we couldn't just take the opening slot that paid no money on these tours. And so we were in this, we, we gotten ourselves again into a corner where to be a band, we had to exist in this realm of touring but we had to make a certain amount of money, but to get these tours, a lot of bands at that time and now still always, they live in their parents' basements and they, they're not paying rent. Right. Right. And so that when you're up against that and the people that can at the drop of a hat jump on tour, they don't have to say, okay, are we going to make this amount of money? I have to work this day. I can't get off work that time. And it's just the nature of it. Like some people can, have the luxury of not doing that. And we didn't. It's a young man's game for sure. It really, it really is. And again, we, we started kind of like differences of opinions with what the band wanted to do and booking agent left and singer quit. And then everybody kind of went back to work and it wasn't that big of a transition like it was with Fairweather because Fairweather was such more of a machine Mm -hmm. that, that, ending of Fairweather was much more abrupt and more of a life change. Whereas like we just kind of all went back to our apartments and our lives when Olympia kind of slowed down and stopped. And which is unfortunate. I, I love that band. We had a, we made great music together and it was a lot of fun, but this, the thing about taking a right instead of taking a left is that that made us be home and start hanging out with everybody in Fairweather again which ultimately led to us getting back together as a band. So, you know, that you make lemons out of lemonade out of lemons or however the saying goes. Right. And when you take that pressure away of, we have to be out on tour, we have to make money. We have to make this the biggest band in the world. I've spoken to a lot of bands about this experience where, you know, they can come back together after a time and just play music and have fun. Like it was in the beginning. And there's not all this insurmountable pressure to make it this thing. Totally. 100%. And it was like that alone, not having the pressure to, to tour or to do anything outside of what we wanted to do was so, it it was like freeing. And I didn't, we didn't, I didn't realize it at the time because I had been in this kind of music industry machine for so long. Mm -hmm. We, when we stopped doing Olympia, Ben from Fairweather, the other guitar player in Fairweather, started doing a side project called C's, like the seven C's S E A S where he sang and played guitar. It was very amazing music is it's like kind of Americana creepy stuff. It's, it's great. I think it's on the internet. I think you can find it. So what happened was he made this record on his own and then essentially Fairweather became his band. 
to play shows. So we played around DC quite a bit for a couple years. And we would all be together, aside from the singer, Jay from Fairweather, because basically everybody in Fairweather was part of Ben's band. And we just kind of decided to write a new Fairweather album and maybe do a, have a different name, change the name, not have it be Fairweather. We got together. I think some of us had some ideas. We got together and decided, I think we were jamming on some old songs just to kind of warm up. And we decided to just do a show like a Fairweather show. But in the process of warming up, we decided that we wrote a few songs and because that was one of the things that we always did really well together was write music. And it was very exciting. It, it had no, it had nothing to do with how many people were at the shows or what kind of shows we were playing. And so the songs all came out really well, really quickly. They were really raw. And I think everybody brought a lot to the table because we were so excited to be together again. And so that record came out, the self-titled Fairweather record ended up being like really punk and very, I mean, there's only like two guitar tracks on most of the record unless there's like a guitar lead or something. And much different from the last Fairweather record before that, which was real lush and layered. Yeah, Lusitania was more of like a kind of moving in a more experimental direction. And I noticed the 2014 record is just more straightforward, uh, like the melodic punk. Yeah, yeah. And that was a, a reaction to kind of what we just wanted to like burst. We... We were so happy to be together. We just wanted, everybody comes from that same world. Lusitania was really fun for us. We were really exploring a lot at the time and it didn't really do very well when it came out. It got good reviews, but it was kind of, people either really liked it or really didn't like it. It was, it was a very divisive record at the time. Yeah. Um, in retrospect, we have a lot more people telling us that they really liked the record because they didn't get it at the time. Right. And especially in that community with everyone so young, like yes. there's there, I, there's endless records I could name right now that I would not give the time of day back then or even listen to that I like a lot now. The, you know, these a lot of these records just take time for people to even grasp. Totally. Especially when you're a young, a young person, younger than younger than me. Like I remember seeing the bands that I remember thinking the new Lifetime music was too weird for me. <laughs> like I liked their weird moshy stuff where he used to sing off key. And when they came out with hello bastards, I thought it was a little too like noisy and punk at the time, <laughs> at the time, you know, this is blasphemous to even say this about lifetime at this point, but like that's because I was a young kid and I developed my opinion of this band. They should be a certain way. Yes. And that's how people are with music, you know, they, and it took them a while and I got to say it's, it's really kind of turned around with that record. People now love that record, but at the time it was tough. It was time. It was tough to get tours with that record being our record. Yeah. We got a lot of weird looks when we play those songs. (laughs) A lot of weird looks. Yeah. And you know, it's your second full length. That's usually when bands, I don't know, they either lean into what they're, what they're doing or they try something else and you just never know how it's going to go. Totally. And like I said, at the time, 2003, this is when like Thursday signing a major label, thrice is signing a major label. My chemical romance is signing to a major label. All these bands are getting astronomically big. So people expected us to write this like record that had all these pop punk songs, even though us as a band, never wanted to, the pop punk title because none of us were from that world. It's just that 
we were hardcore kids that wanted to make a melodic thing. Yeah. It came out that way. And there was a lot of expectation for it to be like, if they move, kill them too. And it wasn't. And that, you know, I, I think of the, uh, five years down the line, a lot of bands were starting to do more experimental stuff. I know hopes fall did a really cool record that came out around like maybe 2004. Yeah. They yeah. had a, an experimental one with a types. Yeah. Right, right, right. And, um, bands started being, Oh, it was okay to do that sort of thing. But I, I feel like we, we did it just before it was okay to do it. People expect a certain thing. And so it's, you throw them a curveball. It's kind of hard. Now I personally like, when a band still sounds like that band, but they don't deliver me the same album every single time. Exactly. Yeah. Um, younger, younger people who want that thing that made them feel that way that made them scream when they were a kid because they broke up and it was a thing that gave them solace when their girlfriend dumped them or, you know, that thing that like they connect they imprint to, it's like an imprint. Yes. In their brain. Anything that goes different from that is weird to them. Yeah. At that age. And I get that because I was that, I was, like I said, I was the same way. So that's what, so when we did the self-titled it, it was like this big burst of emotion of us all being excited together. Let's write the punk rock record that we meant to write as a follow-up to Lucy anyway. So we, we were going to have, the plan was after Lusitania, we were just going to write a hardcore record. And then the band really never, we never really got there. So does Fairweather still have plans to play, or do you still play sometimes? Yes. Uh, thank you for asking. We are in the process of doing a 20th anniversary reissue of If They Move, Kill em on Equal Vision. Right now, they're going to re-release the vinyl. Nice. And we have been writing a new record for the past three years, four years now. Ooh. So, Is it the hardcore record that you never got to write? It is more weird than that. <laughs> it is another, it's left, it's, it's not left field. It's more like the parking lot of the stadium <laughs> of an album. So we got together. All right, let me see where to, where to start this. Everybody had so many things change over the course of once the full length came out. Full length came out 2014. Our drummer had a second child. So we kind of had to, pump the brakes on playing gigs we played it we did a, a bunch of fun shows in 2014 and then we decided you know if we're going to spend this time rehearsing to play these shows let's just write more music because this is what we all want to do anyway our singer jay lives in houston shane our drummer lives in richmond the rest of us live in dc ish so then our other friend nick who was the bass player for olympia phenomenal bass player had the amazing idea to have him come in as the bass player and our bass player from Fairweather was never a bass player intentionally. He was a guitar player who we got to play bass to be in the band. So what we wanted to do was write music that was much more orchestrated and elaborate. And so writing, we wanted to have three live guitar players playing. So it made perfect sense to have Fairweather's bass player become our third guitar player and our buddy Nick, who's a phenomenal bass player, come in and play bass. Mm. So we became a six-piece, and we started writing as a six-piece in the same room. And throughout a bunch of people's kids being born and marriages happening and jobs and all this crap, Ben opened a studio, opened another studio. 
it took us about four years to write this album, right? So we've been writing this album. We've just, we're just finishing it up right now. And there's four songs and it's about 30 minutes of music. So it's really long as far as like an EP goes, but it's much more slow and dark and heavy. So oh, it's nice. almost like, it's almost like bounces back the other direction. So where the self-titled, we wanted to have everything super raw, like you were with the band playing in a room. Mm-hmm. We wanted to have this one be everything we could possibly think of to add to the songs to make them the best that they could be. So there's like tons of lush harmonies and effects and keyboards and organs and guitar tones all over the place. And it's really more of like a theatrical thing without sounding like a total dork saying (laughs) the songs are slower and they're heavier, but they're much more, I think, pretty and melodic at the same time. I love that. That's like, right up my alley. I'm looking forward to, uh, to hearing that. And we, you know, I want to make sure we get to be well too. So be well, this is an incredible band. We've got members of Bane, Converge, Darkest Hour, Fairweather, of course, Ashes, Battery. That's like every band that's ever existed. And, (laughs) you know, Peter, between myself and you and Tommy here, you know, when you hear about one of these super groups coming together, a lot of times it can just sound like a bunch of guys in a band. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, but be well. And this record, the weight and the cost is amazing. It really is. It's That's really awesome. good. Like, perfect melodic hardcore. I really enjoy what you guys are doing. Tell us a little bit about how it came together. It's, it's, it's crazy. I'm, like I said, I'm 44 and I'm more busy with music than I've been in the last 15 years almost. It's, it's crazy um, with Fairweather. And I'm also in another band or I play bass in another band. We can talk about that too. But I guess I have to talk about that band. I, so I'm, I'm in another band with Mike Schleibaum from Darkest Tower called Zealot, RIP. I play bass. Mike plays guitar. Jason Hamaker from Frodus plays drums. And Blake Harrison from Pig Destroyer sings in this band called Zealot which we're all f- buddies from the same area. And Mike and Jason had this idea to do this really noisy, aggressive punk, angular, noisy punk metal band for a long time. And I've been friends with Mike from Darkest Hour for quite some time. And so I live close to him. So I started playing bass for this band, right? And um, we had played a, a bunch of shows. And Zell, it's super fun. It's really kind of like crazy punk metal, metally punk. I don't know. It's, it's weird. Go listen to it. Super fun. There's not a lot of pressure to it, which is also amazing. Everybody in the band is is great. Um, Mike and Brian McTurnan are in battery together. And Brian and Mike had started this idea to, instead of doing more battery, to turn it into a new band. And Brian had been writing music for a little while after battery stopped playing, maybe 2017 or 2018. They did a tour in Europe. They started writing songs and then kind of put the band together after the songs started coming together. So Brian had been, had this great burst of energy of writing after they decided to do a new gig. And since I'm already with Mike all the time with this other band, we're hanging out a lot. It kind of made sense guitar playing wise, the way that I play guitar to come on board, be well as the other guitar player and be well because 
it's kind of similar to my style of playing. And um, I said, you know who we should get as a drummer? We should get Shane from Fairweather. And Shane lives in Richmond, and he was like, I don't want to do another band. And I said, come on, just listen to this stuff. And then it kind of just kind of, I met, they brought in Aaron, too, from Bane. So Aaron plays bass. Aaron plays guitar in Bane, but he plays bass in Be Well. And just kind of crazy, the whole thing just came together, and it, like, locked. And we started rehearsing and playing these songs, and we put out the record, and it's been pretty cool. That's out. That's excellent. Do you feel nervous coming into that at all? I mean, I feel nervous about anything I do pretty much, but if I was playing <laughs> with all these people I looked up to, I'd be like, oh, fuck. You know, no, because I don't know. I didn't know Aaron before, Aaron from Bane. I didn't know Aaron before. It's not like Bane or a bunch of rock stars, so I you have to worry about that. But also, I don't give a shit about people, and if they're not going to be cool to me, I don't care about them. And... Brian's a really sweet guy, and I've maybe met him once or twice over the years. I was a huge Ashes and Battery fan growing up, but there's no posturing or anything. And I'm already, I'm already friends with Mike, and I've been in a band with Shane for 20 years, so it wasn't weird. You know, it was like just kind of jumping into something midstream that felt felt normal to do. It wasn't like I was showing. It, so to answer your question, it might have been different if I was showing up alone to a bunch of dudes that I didn't know. Right. That's how I'm thinking of it. Yeah. Right. I wouldn't have felt intimidated as much as I would have felt like I don't know their personalities and I don't know how to interact with them. Like I said, for my job, I have to like navigate people's personalities all the time that are millionaires. I'm used to that, but this wasn't that this wasn't like coming in and being like, Ooh, I don't know who you are. And this, I look up to you and that kind of sort of thing, because none of these bands were that sort of thing. Maybe if it was like, like fucking Mick Jagger or something, I don't know. It might've been weird <laughs> to be like, oh, I can't believe I'm in a room with you. You know, it was like, it wasn't like that. And it was like, we really clicked right off the bat. We really clicked. And everybody has become in the course of doing this thing. It was almost like, I can't believe that we were ever not in a band together. So, Yeah. Yeah. It it makes everything a lot easier when it's so much fun to just hang out. Like we we'll get together, same as Fairweather and same as Zealot. We'll get together and then be like, Oh yeah, we should start playing. Because everybody's just hanging out for the first hour and you know how hard it is to book a rehearsal when you're in your forties. So yeah, there's so it's so like I said, being busy now, we're doing we're doing this Fairweather stuff and then we're doing Be Well and kind of crazy because I have to think think about how I'm going to use my vacation time to do these fair, these be well gigs. Fairweather is like, you know, we'll play a couple times in a year or something like that, but we're going to probably do a show this, this winter. We'll do a, a Fairweather record release show probably once we decide what to do with the record, but be well's got a lot of stuff coming up. So that's a whole nother like can of worms. And it's all good problems to have aside from like juggling life stuff around it. So it's def- definitely first world problems to be complaining about like, do we go to play Furnace Fest? Do I take this Friday off? Do I fly down or do I have, you know? <laughs> yeah. Do you have a family, Peter? I do, yeah. So you got a wife and how many kids? I have a wife and a, four, and a four-year-old. So is it tough to balance that with all the musical and everything else? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is. It is. We don't have a lot of help. We have a lot of good friends, but it's tough, you know? You're getting, being away a lot. That's hard to do and finding care and being on a schedule regimented based on somebody else's well-being and try to do like 
also like my kids young, other people in bands have older children. So it's like a little bit easier to leave them or leave them with somebody else. So when they're at a, at a younger age, it's like, you can't just be like, Hey, come over and watch my kid for a little bit. Right. <laughs> or it can't be away. I used to work for a company doing art installations all over the country. And I would be away for a month every three months. And it was fine. And it was cool because I didn't have anything else to worry about. I'd live in a hotel for a month and then I'd be home for two months and I'd live in a hotel for a month. But you know, everybody's in the same boat. Be well, everybody's in the same boat. Fairweather, everybody's in the same boat. So it's not like nobody's pressuring you to do anything you can't do. That's good. Yeah. I think that's the way it goes. Once you get older, you get settled. There's not the pressure of having to be out on the road all the time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And like, once you make that decision and it's be well, the way that be well is, is like, there's going to be opportunities that the band can't pass up that I can't do or that Shane, our drummer can't do or somebody else can't do. And we made the agreement, just get a fill in, do the show because you know, it's as long as it's not the singer of the band, you know, doing a cool gig or a cool tour, like say a cool, awesome full us tour with like an amazing band comes up that I can't do. It's more worth it for them to do it without me than to not do it. And, you know, you think that maybe when you're younger, you wouldn't want that to happen, but you got to have a work-life balance somehow. And you have to have a, a comfortable agreement with your, with your bandmates. And when everybody's in agreement, and that's why bands break up because the people are kind of like subconsciously not in agreement about something or other. Right. And we, we have that with all the bands that I play in. So you're 44, you're in four, you're in three bands, you have a full-time job, but everybody's open about what, what we're doing. So it, it's not as much pressure as it kind of sounds like it might be. Yeah. Cause I think that's one of those things that I consistently come back to is like, so I have three kids and I always think like, if someone ever said to me, Hey, do you want to play music? I'd be like, uh, not really. <laughs> Cause I feel yeah. like I'd be the guy in the band ruining it for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like, do I, are you doing bedtime tonight? Or if you did bedtime last night, like you don't want to be the guy that's ruining it for people. So I don't think I could be in a band with a bunch of 23 year olds. If I put it that way. Also just, I'm in a different place in my life. You know, I'm, I'm, like I said, I don't want to keep talking about how old I am, but you're a different person. I'm a different person than I was then. Peter, let's talk about what we have coming up and anything you want to plug for all the bands. Fairweather's first record, If They Move Kill em, is going to be reissued on Equal Vision on vinyl. Um, I think the announcement's coming out tomorrow. All right. So, folks, by the time you're hearing this, it will be announced and hopefully there will be a pre-order or something like that. Go pick it up. That's an, yeah. that's an amazing record. Yeah, well, thank you. And um, yes. we keep an eye out for the new Fairweather record that's probably going to come out close to the end of the year because um, we've been working really hard on that. It would be awesome if wherever it happens to come out, people buy it. We have a new Zealot RIP record, and that's the band that I'm in with all those other dudes. That is coming out on 3-1-G in... August or September. Be Well has a song on a comp on uh, on End Hits and Europe for, uh, it's a comp called Strength for Unity. It's a Coney Island benefit compilation for a venue in, uh, in Germany. And that's pretty sick. There's a lot of awesome bands on it. It's got Comeback Kid, Death by Stereo, Sick of It All, Youth of Today, Be Well, Fide, Free Will, uh, Boy Says Fire, Vision Up Front. So there's a lot of cool bands that are on a cool comp. 
We are going to be well is actually playing a ton of shows coming up. We're doing Furnace Fest and we're doing the fest in Florida. We're going on the way to Furnace Fest. We're playing three shows with Boy Sets Fire and Alice Failed on the way down. Oh, you're yeah. on those? Yeah. It's- oh, dude, that's awesome. Yo, All Else Failed is, I think, my favorite live band ever. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, my God. They that's have. so rad. Have you ever seen them? I have never seen them. I got their CD when they were still a band, and I always really loved them, and I never got to see them play live because I think I got their CD probably when they were at the end of their time. I've seen a lot of footage of them on the, um, on the, the old internet. Yes. of their live shows since they've been back together again. <laughs> That's uh, So we're doing On the Way Down. We're playing Harrisonburg, Raleigh, North Carolina, and Asheville, North Carolina, mm. on the way down to Furnace Fest. So, Tommy, get ready. We're driving to Virginia. Just go to, be, go to the internet and find Be Well and find all the days we're playing. We're going to do a lot of cool stuff. That's awesome. I'm, I'm looking really forward to seeing you, you guys. I will be at Furnace Fest, so I will make sure I'm there bright and early Sunday morning to catch you. Yes, yes, Sunday morning. We were talking about this before when, when we weren't on recording, but we're playing Sunday at Furnace Fest. And that's the same day that Get Up Kids and Hate Replay, so it's going to be a, a crazy fun day. And, uh, yeah, we play first. So if anybody's coming, come at 11. Yeah, I'll be there. Look for the overly dressed guy walking around asking where Candiria is so he can give them a <laughs> Northeast scene business card. Oh, my God. <laughs> Dude, I saw I saw Candiria so many times in the 90s. It was awesome. Oh, they're so good. Yes. Yeah. I can't wait to see them again and literally every other band I've ever loved at Furnace Fest. Peter, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. You know, you've created a lot of excellent music that myself and Tommy and tons of other people like and be well is a great band a new i love new great music you know i heard this record recently i really like it i'm looking forward to seeing the band and catching you guys out on the road so i just want to thank you for taking the time to speak with us well i had a great time i really appreciate it and uh i i always love an opportunity to talk to cool people so i thanks again guys There you have it, folks. Peter Soros. Great conversation. Great bands. Bright future with Be Well. Bright past with Fairweather and everything he's done. It's just... And Fairweather's coming out with a new record, too, which yeah, I that, didn't know. That's crazy. The, I like the way he described it. Three guitars, all dark and layered, and but still heavy. That's that's like right up my alley. Looking forward to hearing that. That's going to be really good. I'm I'm exact. I'm I'm excited for uh, the Zealot R.I.P. <laughs> yeah, so we were just talking about that. It, like every member was in a band that Tommy loves. What was it like? Pig Destroyer, Combat Wounded Veteran, Frodus. Yeah, <laughs> it, was like, just, it was just like that's like the super group. I'd be like, all right, wow, this is yeah. every every band on here I love. So <laughs> awesome. Yeah, but that was that was a great conversation. So thank you, Peter, and. um while we were recording, my mic dropped out, and I thought everyone was just ignoring me. So, so like, typical me, I take everything personally. Tommy's, like, seven minutes deep into a story. And I was like, <laughs> okay, okay, okay. And they just kept going. I was like, why is nobody listening to me? And then I look at my Audacity track, and it's not, it stopped. It's not recording. And then, like, at the end of Usual Suspects, like, I dropped the coffee cup. <laughs> and it's falling through the air in slow motion, and I realize, like, they can't hear me. 
they can't hear me and you know technical difficulties happen sometimes what can i say certainly does but it was one of those ones where i i knew i looked at the clock and it said like seven minutes and i was still telling a story about my kids and peter and i were talking about like raising kids and i was like keith has not stopped us yet what is happening right now (laughs) tommy's like the dog that's that's in trouble and it knows it's in trouble so it like grabs the turkey leg from the kitchen table on the way into the kitchen like he's like eight minutes deep into a story he's like well fucking i'm just gonna keep going (laughs) (laughs) no one stopped me yet i'm gonna keep it i'm gonna i'm gonna push this down as fast as i can go the one thing that's really nice about hearing stories about touring though is like when you hear peter talk about like hey like this is kind of the agreement we've had as a band is we're going to continue doing this and we're openly communicating that if this is like a we can't turn this down type thing someone is going to fill in how would you feel if you were in the band and somebody filled in for you uh not good yeah i actually was gonna i i that's one of those things that i I would, I know for the betterment of the the group and for the band, it's like the best decision. Like, no, we need to play the show. Yeah. But there's also a part of me that would be like. It's like an open relationship. You know, like they're going to like, what if they're like, oh, this guy's a lot cooler. Oh, let's just go with him. I'd be too, I'd be too afraid of that. I don't know if I could handle it. I feel like I, I would be confident enough to be like, yeah, no, I can take a break and I'll just come right back because these guys are my friends. But yeah if somebody came in and just fucking killed it and it was like hey not only does he kill it but um he has an open schedule and he's free to travel and you're like okay yeah damn imagine if there was like another host that had to step into the show and like he didn't napalm death you and he like just let you go on as long as you want (laughs) you might like him better tommy and, and i wouldn't be able to handle that i would not be able to handle it here's the only thing uh no (laughs) <laughs> because i think that's a, a a thing that i consistently come back to is you are the rudder that steers the ship like yes you you keep the you keep everything in line and keep us in in kind of where we need to be going like you ultimately have like this kind of trajectory of like hey i want to get to this 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 and this if i was at the helm of this we would still be on episode four <laughs> like it would be an eight hour show no one would fu- we you know like it would be it, about your job basically it yeah, would be a teaching podcast it would be yeah and it, hey you want to hear me tell a story about my kids like nobody wants to hear that like it's the same thing of like you know uh when i uh like you know what the work- secret is what? here's the i'm gonna give the i'm gonna give you the secret tommy and any other podcasters out there listening you you, you pepper a little bit in a little bit you know you just you know, a little a little touch of family, a little touch of work, a little touch of life struggle, right? You you just pepper it. Yeah. You don't want to go too long. There's a there's the secret. You d- you lose people. Yeah. When you do stuff like that. I I I was going to say um what was the other th- I was thinking about something and I I just lost it completely. I'm sorry. Never mind. That's okay. We got it, time. It was Let's just sit here until you remember it. it Hold was, on. It was something that here. Peter said. Hold on. I try to think of it. Got it. <laughs> so one of the things that he was saying when you know uh, with starting be well, you know, yeah. he's like that. You know, there's Aaron from Bain, and and he kept going on in my head. I would go, I would be so intimidated walking into that room 
that it would be very obvious that I would feel like I wasn't a part of it. Like, because yeah. it's like, you guys are, <sighs> you, we're looking had... at it from our perspective though. Yes, like like he said, right. he, yeah. he knows these guys, he's yeah. played with them. So it's not like me showing up to Brian McTernan's doorstep and being like, I'm ready to play guitar and meet you for the first time. <laughs> you know, I have something I want to say. What do you got? I just, I just randomly thought of this. Now I, I heard a critique of me in this podcast a long time ago, last year, if you can believe that. And the the critique that was given was, oh, so-and-so said, it sounded like you were mad that you never made it in music. And I was like, excuse me? No. <laughs> and I don't understand how this person came to that conclusion based on the episode that they were talking about. And my point in explaining all of this is, I just, I'm so curious about how all of this stuff works. You know what I mean? Because I'm yeah. like, I wanted to be in bands so bad, and the bands never seemed to work out or go where I wanted them to go. But we talked to all these bands who, in my eyes, had incredible careers and big accomplishments, and I'm like, I'm, I'm always just trying to get to the root of why and how it happens. And the simple answer just seems to be that it just happens. Yeah. It's like I said to Peter, it's just groups of friends get together and play, and it just seems to last a long time and go places for some people and for others, not so much. I think also the other thing that seems to be a common thread is perseverance. Yes. Just because there's a singular failure or even a dozen failures, uh, the people that ultimately become successful don't give up. They go, you know, I'm going to keep doing this, whether it's I'm going to do this, you know, pursue this part time with my friends and we'll just share recordings through, you know, uh, email or you know what, I'm going to continue with my full-time job and just, I, I, I'm going to try to make this work when I can make it work. Um, and then ultimately, you know, like you, like we talked about in the, the podcast, though, is like levels of success are all relative. Like we think of like the guys in Bain as being like really successful. Yeah. But in comparison to like the, the Rolling Stones or fucking, you know, like the Pearl Jam or like, you know, like those bands that like fucking play like a re like, you know, stadiums and shit like that. Yeah. They're a blip. But to us and to those people, like the music that we that they made means so much more. I can put a Pearl Jam song on in the background and go, eh, whatever. Yeah. Like, uh, whereas, you know, when I hear like Bane, like fucking backwards glance like i i know all the words and i want to sing along with it and i get goosebumps when i hear the fucking break come in i'm like yes this is like it feels there's such a more of a personal connection to a lot of these things that we kind of i think this is just maybe my failing but i romanticize a lot of it and kind of make it something it necessarily isn't like wow this is great there's i i put so much trust and time and uh kind of like thought into this band and you know listening to their music that when i see another band that's successful i go ew you guys aren't good i'm so happy that yeah we live we exist in a different microcosm of music which i'm so grateful for because one we can go to a show and be right up front and you know, not have to watch with binoculars and pay $400, which I know you like, because you're constantly trying like. to think of ways to save money. And two, now that we do this podcast, we can actually talk to the bands that we love. If yeah. we did a lame-o 
classic rock podcast, we'd have to talk to some guy that saw the Rolling Stones in like 1960. You know, we don't want that. We're going right to the source. Talk to one of the 11 members of Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. More like no. Dude, I don't know. I fucking love you. Boom. Roasted. Boom. <laughs> I fucking, I love Yes so much because it was one of those, uh, uh, there was an old, uh, I forget the name of the movie, but it was a Tim Burton movie. And they used a, just a real quick clip um from uh i think starship trooper from yes and i i didn't know what the song was but it, it that part of that um preview of this movie it just stuck in my mind and then i went to go visit riley um when he was getting his masters and we went into some teeny tiny little record shop and i saw uh, a yes cd and i was like oh greatest hits a yes let me put this on and i started listening to it in the record store and i was like oh this is the song. This is the song. Like I had this like epiphany moment of like, I've been looking for this cl- like 30 second clip of music for <laughs> 10 years. And I found it in some shitty fucking record store in upstate New York. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. It's not like now where you can, you can like, you can find any song if you really need to, you can oh, yeah. Google some lyrics or there are ways, there are ways, but back yeah. then, no, Nope. Nothing. It was Look, just we a, sound so old. Back in my day, you had to come across a song, and I told a story in class the other day about because um, kid, the kids were saying something about like you know they got stuck it, that day. It started pouring rain last week, and they were like, oh, "I was stuck at the bus stop," and like I ran inside and I called my mom, and I'm like, "I didn't I, when I was your age, I didn't have a cell phone." They're like, "Oh, like you couldn't afford one." I'm like, "No, <laughs> there weren't cell phones." They're like. <laughs> how old are you <laughs> They're like they thought it was the craziest thing in the world and keep in mind like my kids are like you know 11 12 years old so like they, their parents are sometimes like you know 30 so like their parents for the most part like when they're talking about stuff like they, yeah they had a cell phone most of their like teenage years like i didn't get a cell phone until college like i don't know well listen we're, we're running out of time yeah, we're old. What are we going to do? But we still look great. Tommy's like all jacked up. He looks like a cop on steroids. <laughs> I uh, I look pretty good, you know? I got the long hair and the beard going. That's a good look when, I'm a, when I can have it. So we... I don't know why I'm saying this, but uh, listen. Let's move on to more important things. <laughs> let's take care of some show business real quick. Look, I'm going to keep reminding you, the audience, that we need your support. Um... I'll here. How about this? I'll dial it back a little bit once we hit ten thousand followers. Jesus. All right? Yeah, we got a long way to go. We're but we we've cruised past three thousand now, which is great. So once we hit ten thousand followers on Instagram, I will not ask you to write us and review us and rate us every single episode. But I'm going to do it. So write us at northeastscene at gmail dot com. Rate us on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. I'm too fragile of an ego. I can't handle any less than that. And if you like the show, write a nice review, and we'll read it on the air. That's always fun. Also, um, I was looking at our Instagram page the other day, and one of my like, one of the dudes that I really, really like that makes music follows us, and I was like, shit, that's fucking awesome. Like, he, yeah, I appreciate what he does a lot, and he fucking follows us. I was like, god damn, that's fucking awesome. 
Yeah, I love that. And I love that I lose track because I'm insane with social media. And I used to be like, I can't believe this person didn't follow me back. I can't believe that blah, blah, blah. And I'm on the page. And I'll go to like, find someone to message them and ask them to come on. And I realize like, they're already following us. And I'm like, what? (laughs) I, I didn't even notice. I guess you just lose track after a while. Uh, yeah, no, and I saw his name come up. I was like, oh, shit, that's crazy. It's that dude from um, his name. I, I, I know him as Rob Devious. I, I think oh, the Shed guy. Yeah, dude, that kid is a fucking genius. Like, unbelievable musician. Like, it, it's it's if you don't follow his name's Rob Devious on Instagram. If you don't follow him, please go follow him. Fucking everything from like really beautiful piano stuff to fucking neo soul stuff he is just the kid's a virtuoso and he's fucking unbelievable and i just i i when i saw he was following us i was like fuck yeah fuck i yeah. went to his page dude i happened upon his page through northeast scene and he was playing the final fantasy 7 theme on piano because it was an anniversary or something and i was like yo this guy knows what's up he he certainly does and i think he i don't know how he's involved with it but i think he did all the new the music for um that guy asher roth i think he yes. did his a lot of his uh, the stuff for his new record yes i saw that too well look we're out of time that's it so we hope you enjoyed this episode and we're going to be back next week with more because we're here every monday for you so thanks everybody for listening and until next time